Now, after reading the last story, which was chapter 14, where they refused to go into the promised land, God told the children of Israel, therefore, you will not be going into the promised land. They tried to go in anyway, and God had the Amalekites drive them out of the promised land. That happened last time. And they are doomed now to 40 years in the wilderness until the rebellious generation has passed away. But if you've ever wondered, like I have, why did they go along with that? <laughs> the short answer is that they didn't. The children of Israel did not go quietly into the wilderness. As we've already seen, they continued to oppose Moses at every turn. And God knew that this could not continue. This would, he could not just having, be having rebellion after rebellion against Moses and Aaron for 40 years. So, in these chapters, he's going to bring the issue of authority in Israel to a head. And he's going to make it very plain who he has chosen. And there will be other problems that the Israelites have throughout their wilderness wanderings but the issue of who's in charge is not going to be one of them. Now, we ourselves, of course, have our own issues with authority. We have issues with God's authority sometimes, ranging to his delegated authority in government, the authority in the church, and even in our own families. And not too long ago in the book of Daniel, we discussed the importance of taking a stand and saying no to the authority when you are being pushed beyond what God would allow. There is a place to stand strong and ask questions. Acts 5.29, Peter told the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. And that is such an important lesson to learn. But that is not the lesson we're learning tonight. The lesson we are learning tonight is that we can, to use the words of Moses and Korah, you go too far in our questioning of authority. And it's important to realize in passing here, uh, there are so many lessons in the Bible. We cannot spend all of our time examining every lesson from every angle every time. So sometimes you're going to hear a message that goes really strong in one direction, and you're going to wonder about the balance. Well, you have to stick around, and, and we will balance it eventually. So uh, this is a, a great example. If you felt that the study on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went a little too far in uh, permitting Christians to resist authority, this will set you straight. And if you enjoyed that last one a little too much, this one will also set you straight. So we're going to start with uh, chapter 15, go through this chapter fairly quickly in order to get to chapter 16, but begin verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or at your appointed feasts to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We discussed all those things at length in the beginning chapters of Leviticus. Then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of a hin of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Or for a ram, you shall offer it for a grain offering, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering, you shall offer a third of a hin of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or for peace offerings to the Lord, then one shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil. And you shall offer for the drink offering half a hin of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each bull or ram or for each lamb or young goat. As many as you offer, so shall you do with each one as many as there are. 
Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in offering a food, aroma, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger is sojourning with you, or anyone is living permanently among you, and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the assembly there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. The Lord spoke to Moses saying in verse 18, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord of the first of your dough. You shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor. So shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. Now we, at the beginning of the book of Numbers had a long list of names and numbers and then how the people were to be organized in the camp. And then we got back into a rhythm of narrative. We were telling stories about the journey to the promised land. Now, this section here in chapter 15, where we get right back to the legal genre, can seem jarring. And there are even some scholars that say, this is how you know that this book was assembled later and Moses didn't write it because Moses would never write it in such a jarring manner. But it does serve a function in the overall text. And I'm going to try and show you as we go through this. First of all, we see that what God says, the time that relates to this law is when you come into the land. So the Lord is reminding them by giving them commandments pertaining to it that his promise still stands. God has not changed his mind. You will come in and I'm still going to be giving you the laws about how you're going to keep them. And the law is very basic. There's a lot of details here. He's giving different circumstances, but it, it, it amounts to this. Whatever sacrifice you make, they were to offer a proportionate offering of grain and wine with it. We've discussed the grain offering before, how every burnt offering had to include a grain offering as well. But the Lord is expanding this to cover every offering and also a drink offering. And this is really the only place in the Bible where we give are given a description of what a drink offering was because it was not a primary offering like a burnt or a sin offering was. It was something that was done in conjunction. So remember in the golden table of showbread in the holy place, there were golden pitchers and there were golden bowls to hold the wine for the drink offering. But we're not given the law for it until this passage here. And he gives different proportions. If it's a lamb, then you have to give a little bit. If it's a ram, it's a little more, all the way up to a bowl, in which case it's a large amount of grain and wine. And the way they would have offered this, they would have put, you remember the, the grain that was the portion, the memorial portion to be offered with the frankincense that was on top of it so that it would be a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering would have been poured out probably onto the sacrifice itself. If you've ever been barbecuing in the backyard, I know you soaked whatever you're, you're cooking in something. It makes it smell nice. So this is what's going on. 2 Timothy 4, 6, Paul will say that he is being poured out like a drink offering. And he also includes the sojourners of the land, which this is another oblique promise here. Because he says, when you get in there and you're the citizens, there will be others who come in and they will be the sojourners and strangers. At this point, those things are reversed. But God is reminding them that the day will come. And he says that there will be one law for all of them. They are not permitted to come and worship in their own way. They couldn't come in, for example, and say, well, in my country, we offer pigs to the gods and then we drink the blood. Is that okay? No, this is how you do it. 
But you, it is interesting to see that the Lord opens up the worship of the tabernacle to foreigners, to Gentiles. It's another reminder that God always intended to include the Gentiles in the worship of the one true God and explains why Jesus got so mad and flipped tables over when their court was given over to money-making. And the last thing we saw there is that they were to offer the first of their dough to the Lord. He says, like the threshing floor. Remember the first gatherings of the field of the grain was to be brought to the Lord as the first fruits offering. He says, you do the same thing with the first of your dough. And there was divided opinion on this. There are some who believe that this was the first of the season. So the first time you bake bread, you bring a loaf to the Lord. Or this is every time you bake bread. And there are certain passages in scripture that make it seem like that's exactly what you're supposed to do. But it does not specify here. The point is, when you baked bread, whenever you brought in anything, the first part of it was to go to the Lord. There's, th this is the foundation of what we will call tithing as it developed later on. And this also explains Romans eleven sixteen, where Paul is talking about the, the Jews who had been partially blinded to the gospel. He said, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now there he's saying, because there is the first fruits of those who are saved were Jews, we know that God is going to bring the rest of them in. All Israel will be saved, Romans 11 says. And in order to illustrate that, he refers to this passage here in Numbers 15, when he says that the dough offered as first fruits is holy. So that's what that is. God, you can see, is looking forward to the conquest, that this is still coming. And he's also making provision for his priests as he did, that they were to bring wine for the priest to drink. They were to bring bread for them to eat, as well as the meat of the offerings. Let's move on now to verse 22. But if you sin unintentionally... And do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses. All that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations. Then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, because it was a mistake. And they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven, and the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake." If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Check this out in verse 30, though. But the person who does anything with a high hand meaning defiantly, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Talking about sacrifices, now he makes a distinction between unintentional and intentional sins. First of all, if the congregation committed an unintentional sin, 
They were all together to offer a burnt offering of a bull and a sin offering of a goat, and the priest would make atonement for them. This is very similar to the day of atonement and the sacrifices that he would make there, although he would not have gone to the holy place and sprinkled the blood as he did on the day of atonement. So if the congregation, if the nation as a whole falls into a sin that they were unaware was a sin, perhaps there was an injustice that wasn't being brought to light or something secret and seedy was going on among them and they didn't know to put a stop to it, then they would do this. 2 Kings 22.11, uh, King Hezekiah tears his clothes because they bring him the book of the law and they realize we haven't been keeping any of this. But they didn't know because they hadn't been reading it. That's an example of an unintentional sin. And so the prophetess Huldah says that the Lord has given you forgiveness because you repented. If an individual committed an unintentional sin, think of maybe Jonathan eating the honey after the battle in 1 Samuel 14. That wasn't God's law, but it was the king's decree that nobody is to eat until the battle is won. Jonathan ate some of the honey and he was punished for it or would have been if the people hadn't stepped in to, to save him. But if a single person did this, the offering was only a sin offering of a female goat, not a burnt offering to cover the whole congregation. But notice carefully, there is no provision in the law for a high-handed sin or an intentional sin. Something you sin knowing full well what it is and doing it anyway. Such a person was to be cut off. And there's debate over what that means. Does that mean execution? I don't think so because the Bible is pretty plain what it means when it says somebody was to be killed, stoned, executed, etc. This is to be cut off from the people of Israel, perhaps even exiled from the land of Israel. If a sojourner is cut off from his people, well, he's going to be banished. You can't come back to the land of Israel. And this is a principle that carries forward into the New Testament. Here's a rather frightening pair of verses from the book of Hebrews. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The author of the Hebrews is probably thinking of this passage here. He refers to the law over and over again, both directly and indirectly. Now, the grace of Jesus is, of course, greater than the law of Moses. And men and women who have committed intentional sins will be forgiven. But what we need to gain from this is that God despises willful sin. God, remember Psalm 103, the Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God gets it. You are a cursed little man living in the middle of space. And God gets that. But those in the church who sin because of the grace of God are outside of salvation according to the New Testament. If you sin out of habit, let's say you, you get saved and you've still got that, that alcoholic temptation and you fall into that and you wake up in the morning and you're just heartbroken and weeping, there is forgiveness for that. Or, or if you sin out of distress, maybe you're put into a situation where tensions are high and emotions are high and you do something you regret, you say something you regret, there, there's forgiveness for that. Or even when you sin and you immediately feel that deep regret, not that, oh man, I hope I don't get caught, but deep regret, I can't believe I did that, woe is me for I am undone, there's forgiveness for that. But Bible makes it very clear. Those who say, God will forgive me, so I'm going to do it. There's no forgiveness for that. that. That is not acceptable. Romans 6, 1 and 2, Paul said, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Certainly not. God forbid. May it never be. How can we, who have been saved from sin, continue in it? And there are other passages that balance that subject too, but we need to feel the full weight of that, of that strike the Lord gives us. So the, I mean, the application here is do not sin. <laughs> and if you do, repent. 1 John 2, 1 says, if we do sin, we have an advocate with God the Father. But the Lord takes high-handed sin very, very seriously. And if you do sin unintentionally, if you get caught up in something, maybe you find it out that you are part of some sort of business deal or something that you would not have approved if you knew about it, then repent and say, Lord, forgive me, and then go correct it. Or if maybe you're reading through the scriptures or you hear me preach something and something is called out in your life that needs to be repented of, then don't stress about it. Repent and then put it aside. The Lord does not tolerate intentional, willful, high-handed sin. Verse 32, here's an example of what happens when that happens. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. So right here, you have an immediate application of that previous passage. Intentional sin. Exodus 35.3, God had said, You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. And they said, well, he didn't start a fire, but he, he was gonna. He was out carrying wood to go back to start a fire. So they arrest him. They go to the Lord and God confirms, yes, he violated the Sabbath because he had a high-handed, rebellious intention in his heart. Maybe something along the lines of, well, if God's not bringing us into the promised land, then I'm not about to keep the Sabbath day. And the penalty for that sin was death. What we learn from this, God had not given up on his covenant to them. He was still their God. They were still his people. He was still going to bring them into the promised land, which meant that they could not back out of the regulations of that covenant because they weren't going to see the blessings in their lifetime. It's an important reminder for us because in, in these days and in most days, we tend to think only of the benefits of the gospel. And they are many and I love to talk about them and I hope that they're the delight of your eyes. But you also have a part to play. You have to obey the commandments of the Lord. You have to follow Jesus to give up all you have and go after him. And you cannot say, well, because Jesus didn't give me what I wanted, I'm going to punish him by sinning. The Lord does not approve of that. Verse 37, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart. So, so much for trust your heart, right? And your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Do you see the chiasm, by the way, in that, that verse 41? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. You see those things everywhere once you know to look for them. Well, finally, this new commandment is to wear tassels on their garments with a cord of blue. Blue was the color that they used to cover the holy place. It was the color they used to cover the Ark of the Covenant and to uh, the priest's garment was made of that blue cloth. So the idea is that everybody is holy to the Lord. 
And it was a reminder, it was a visual reminder, and God uses strong language here not to whore after their own sins, their own eyes, their own wants, but instead to be holy. Jews wear tassels on their prayer shawls to this day. Mark 6.56 said that many people were pressing up to Jesus that they might touch the hem of his garment. That could be better translated, the tassel on the edge of his robe. So when it says that the woman with the issue of blood reached out and touched Jesus, it was likely one of those tassels that she reached out and touched because it would have been hanging low, you see. And in Matthew 23.5, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because he said they were lengthening their tassels. The idea is they were walking out with some big old tassels hanging off of their robes that everybody knew that I was extra holy. And it just made the Lord sick. But the Lord ends this chapter by reaffirming his role as their God and as their deliverer from Egypt and reminding them that even if you are not in the promised land, you still have me. That's the most important thing. So that's that's chapter 15. We have some new laws. Then we have somebody who breaks one of those laws, is punished for it, and then God gives them another law in order to remind them to keep his covenant. Well, here's we get into the main section of our study tonight, chapter 16. I believe the reason those laws and that story were put before chapter 16 is primarily chronology, that this happened before that, but also because I think what's going to happen in chapter 16 is a reaction to what was said and done in chapter 15. So let's read this, verses 1 through 3. We'll take this chapter in small chunks. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? I think, prompted by these new laws, maybe there's some frustration. We're not even going into the promised land, and Moses wants to keep on giving us more stuff to do. And then some guy does something small like this. He's picking up sticks. And we have a full-blown execution. And now they're making us wear tassels on our robes. Moses has just gone to his head. So there's a rebellion. The ringleader here is a guy named Korah, who was a Levite. But if you look also, he was a Kohathite. Do you remember the clans of the sons of Levi? The Kohathites were the ones that camped to the south of the tabernacle, and their job was to carry the furnishings of the temple. Other than the sons of Aaron, they had pride of place in the tribe of Levi. You also have three men, Dathan, Abiram, and On. We're not going to read about On again, so maybe he repented halfway through. That is the Hebrew tradition, but his name is right here. Those three men were all Reubenites. Now, the, the Reuben tribe was also camped to the south of the tabernacle. So what's likely going on here is that the, the men are getting together in the camp and complaining and scheming against Moses. And they recruit 250 well-known men to protest. And they accuse Moses and Aaron, both of them, of arrogating glory to themselves above the other Hebrews. We're special too. We're holy too. God dwells in our midst. So where do you get off telling us what to do? Now they had a shred of truth in their complaint, which is often what makes complaints and 
temptation so hard to resist. The best villains in, in art and in books and TV and plays is the guy that kind of has a point. When you hear him explain himself, you're like, I know you're wrong, but I don't quite know how to tell you you're wrong yet. Consider us. We likewise believe that we are all created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. We believe, to use the words of Martin Luther, in the priesthood of all believers. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, that you are a holy priesthood to the Lord. Galatians 3.28 says, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all equal in Christ. And they were right to say that all the people were holy. But the thing is, our flesh can grab hold of even sound doctrine in order to drive us to sin, to elevate ourselves and defy the decrees of the Lord. We take one aspect of Scripture, make it the most important aspect of Scripture so that we can get what we want. Isn't it ironic they're accusing Moses of exalting himself over the people because they were not in charge. But unfortunately, this idea of resisting authority is embedded into sinful man because the first thing we did of our own volition was to rebel against God's authority. We see this most clearly in the curse that God placed upon woman. He said to Eve in Genesis 3.16, after they'd eaten the fruit and got caught, the Lord said to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now here's this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Part of the curse that sin brought upon women and marriage in general is that whereas before God had created Eve to be side by side with her husband, to be a help meet for him, to submit and follow him with a glad, joyful heart. He says, this sin, this knowledge of good and evil that you've introduced into yourself is going to make you dissatisfied with that position. And you're going to be desiring that, that really to be for your husband. The idea is you're going to want what he has, but he shall rule over you. God says, I'm not changing what I have established, but you are no longer going to be satisfied with your place. And it was, of course, Eve that sinned first. Doesn't get Adam off the hook, but it is important to remember. And that attitude doesn't just affect marriage, but it affects government. Where we're, I mean, we're never satisfied with the government. Even if we like the government, we don't like the government, right? When the last time you met somebody that goes, well, I'm just so proud of, of Washington and what they're doing there. And I love the Congress, both houses and all nine Supreme Court justices, not a stinker among them. They're all great. You've never met that person before because we're resistant to it. Our workplaces, which is a different kind of authority in our country, because if you don't like this boss, you can go leave and find a different one. But still, churches, there are many people that have a resistance to their pastor's leadership. And even in worship, we can be resistant to the Lord. I've, I've done this, and maybe you have too. You open up and show somebody from the scriptures what God says, and they say something like, yeah, but, or well, I just don't know if I agree with that. Then he's not your God. Because you bow before a God. So you bow before a king. And there's always a theological justification for those things. You can always grab hold of one scripture, or a couple maybe, without balancing them out with the entirety of the word. And you can then stand on what you see as biblical ground to combat God's authority as he has established it. But you should be aware. Look out for somebody who has a theological discovery that allows you to do what you've always wanted. You know, to get back to the marriage thing, for example, 
we, you know, in the most feminist society the world has ever had, all of a sudden we've discovered that God never intended wives to submit to their husbands all along. Like, really? We just missed that for thousands of years? But now, when we disagree, it turns out the Bible disagreed all along. Same thing with homosexuality. Well, we, the church has agreed this across time and across space, but now that we're living in a day and age where we approve of it, turns out that God approves of it too. Always look out for that kind of thing. Because there can be discoveries in Scripture that bring us back to the truth, but anything that is appealing to your carnal flesh, you've got to look out for, which is what they had. All the people are holy, yet the Lord had spent considerable time in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere establishing authority, order, even hierarchy in his congregation. So there's the complaint. Let's read verse 4 now down to verse 17. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. I imagine there's a space of time between verses 4 and 5 where Moses prayed. But he fell on his face and said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company. That would be an incense censer that they would have swung. And put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, I would expect that between 7 and 8, in, in verse 8, there should be a paragraph break there. This is probably the next day when they all come together. Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. All the blessings of being a Levite. But would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. It seems like they did not show up for Moses' challenge. And they said, we will not come up. And then they mock him. Look how they mock Moses' words here. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? Talking about Egypt there. Calling Egypt a land flowing with milk and honey. To kill us in the wilderness that you must also make yourself a prince over us. That was the accusation back when he first killed that Egyptian. Remember that? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, be present you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron each his censer. So Moses bows before the God, before God as he often did. And he challenged the rebels to a spiritual trial. He said, we'll all burn incense and whoever survives that's the one God has chosen. This is a serious deal. Remember back in Leviticus chapter 10, what happened with Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons? They burned strange fire before the Lord, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. But of course, these people will take up that challenge because they don't believe that Moses has any authority at all. So they're like, whatever, Moses, we're all holy before the Lord. They had convinced themselves of their own lie, and God will approve of all of us. 
And on the day, Moses rebukes them for being unsatisfied. He's like, you guys are the Levites. You get to carry the holy things. You get a special inheritance in the land. You're provided for from the contributions of the congregation. And you're upset because you don't get to be the next step up? What's wrong with you? Already, we're learning in the Bible that we have to be content with what we have. It's great if, you, if by hard work and, and strong effort, you can rise up, then do so. But if the Lord has placed a limit on what you can do, you are to be okay with that and count the blessings you do have. Dathan and Abiram refused to come. In uh, the Ten Commandments movie, Dathan is the... the uh, Edward G. Robinson plays him. He's, he's the bad guy, the bad Israelite. And they kind of put all of these guys into one guy and named him Dathan. But this is where he appears in the, in the story in the Bible. And they desire to return to Egypt, and they're being so sarcastic with Moses. You didn't bring us into a land of milk and honey. Really, Moses didn't do that. He brought you all the way there, and then you didn't want to go. And then you did go, and he warned you not to, and you were beaten in battle. So you're blaming him now? Moses prays, he puts the question in God's hands, and that is where the question belongs. Who's in charge? Who's the boss? That's up to God. They were trying to scheme and jockey for position because they thought that they could, but they didn't realize that they couldn't. Moses had said to God, please send somebody else. The people aren't going to listen to me. And God said, you're the one I've chosen. God didn't choose these people, and they insisted that they be chosen. Most of the time when we want to talk about authority in any domain, we have the conversation in terms of society or power imbalances or circumstances or history or philosophy of what it ought to be. But in most cases, God has already spoken on these things. And they may take various forms, but there are certain things that cannot be changed. To remind you that these things are in the hands of the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 says that wives are to be in submission to their husbands as unto Christ. Well, I think that it's, it's time for that to change. You don't get to change it. Romans 13.1 tells us that citizens are to be in submission to their government. It says if you resist the authority God has established, you're resisting God. And we live in a democratic society, true, but... The Lord does not endorse rebellion. 1 Peter 2.18 says that servants must serve their masters. Now, we do not have that kind of servitude in our country any longer, and praise the Lord for that. But I think also, if there is somebody who has a kind of employer-employee relation over you, you are to respect and serve them, working heartily as unto the Lord. Once again, we live in a free society, and if you don't feel like you can, then leave. I, I have exhorted some of you in here to do that before. If you can't obey that guy, you can't respect that guy, then get out because you need to. So find someone you can. Hebrews 13, 17, Christians are to obey their pastors, their elders and teachers and rulers. And it's hard to do church discipline in a day when people can just pack up and go to the church down the street. But we are to submit to it. And of course, above all, Philippians 2.10 tells us that every knee shall bow to Jesus Christ as the King of kings. He is the one with all authority. You do not get to choose your other favorite guy in addition to Jesus. doesn't matter if it's Mohammed or Buddha or Confucius or Karl Marx or Friedrich Nietzsche or George Washington for that matter. There is only one king. And he's the one we bow to. He will not share his glory. But as I said, most of this conversation doesn't take place in that realm of what has God said. It takes 
place in society, in asserting our rights. Everybody, like these Korahites, is trying to get the most that they can and keep everybody at bay. Don't touch my stuff, which is not a Christian attitude. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Longish section, but hear this one. It's a good one. Remember, this was written by impertinent and hasty Peter, the man who would later be crucified. He said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's kind of a sweeping statement, isn't it? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's saying everybody thinks that Christians are rebels against the empire. Live as good citizens and make them look silly. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Because you are free in Christ. You're liberated from all authority in Christ, but you should submit to it willingly in order to bring glory to the Lord because you are a servant, a doulas or doula of Christ. There are appropriate times to question and even to challenge authority. But these are the exception. The rule is to imitate Christ and bearing up without complaint under even severe oppression. Verse 18, back in chapter 16 of Numbers. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Notice own is left out, so perhaps he repented. Then Moses went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. That verse is quoted in the New Testament a couple times. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones, still defiant. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. Meaning, if they die natural deaths like anybody else would, this is not of God. But, verse 30, if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. This is a warning. First of all, the glory of the Lord appeared and threatened to destroy all the congregation for a third time. Golden calf, refusal to enter the promised land, Korah's rebellion. And again, Moses and Aaron, Aaron seems to be getting his act together in this chapter. They intercede. Even so, even with all these people in rebellion against them, they pray that God will spare them. But even 
in his mercy, God is not going to spare these rebellious clans. They warn everybody, get away from their tent. And Moses calls upon God to judge them. He does something that is so clear, it could only be the Lord. Because they may be accused him of saying, all these things would have happened anyway, and you said it was God. Moses goes, fine. The ground is going to open up and swallow you. Is that a fair? Is that fair? Would you then believe that God had done that? And they probably believed it was. God warns here the people. He sends Moses to warn the people what would happen if they proceeded with this plan. Likewise, God has also warned us to be in submission to our leaders. I'm going to read this verse. I referred to it earlier, but Hebrews 13, 17, referring specifically to those in the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Over and over again in the Bible, God has established leadership and authority in the church. He says, if somebody is your pastor, your elder, you are to submit to them. And this is not a very American idea. We kind of like, well, the pastor's kind of on trial every week, and if he doesn't do so hot, then you know he's on probation, and if he doesn't like that, we'll drop him from our fantasy team and move on to the next guy. The Bible's warned us about this. So much of public discourse today is about disruption and resistance, and it just, you know, it drove me absolutely crazy. This happens all the time, but I'm going to point out this example. You know, when, when President Trump was elected, Hashtag resist, right? We're going to resist. We're going to put a stop to what he's doing. And I saw that and I go, that's not right. God has established this man. He's a democratically elected president. You need to submit to his authority. And everyone's like, yeah. But then President Biden comes in. And everybody on the right says, we're going to resist. And we're going to push back. And he's not my president. I'm like, y'all are all the same. You're doing the same thing, just depending on what color team happens to be in the White House at the time. Don't do that. Disruption and resistance and rebellion, these are not Christian virtues. Stop letting them inspire you. Christian virtues are submission and obedience and non-retaliation and mercy and love. Love, Christian. Cleanse yourself of these other things. You know when it starts to stoke that fire in your flesh a little bit. I'm not talking about being informed and disagreeing with certain policies and even taking public action and voting and all the rest. Do all that. I do all of those things. But there has to be a posture of the heart that is in submission to what God establishes. At least in this church, I will brook no disruption of God-given order. And I will insist on these things, even though I know it is awkward and it's uncomfortable for me to talk about it because it refers to me. But this is what God has said. And I love this congregation far too much to allow them to walk into sin. I'm going to have to give an account of this someday. Every time you come to me and say, Pastor, can I ask you about something? And you ask for counsel in your life or questions about doctrine. I'm going to have to give an account of myself over how I conducted myself in that meeting. When I'm standing up on judgment day, I don't just have to answer for myself. I've got to answer for all of you. This is why the Lord says, submit to the authority. He's warning the people. 
And if you know somebody, I mean, the Bible in the New Testament says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Somebody comes in here causing trouble. You tell them, we don't do that here. We're not going to do this. And he does it again. And you, you tell him again, but he's still doing that stuff. Reject that man. Say, no, no, we're not, we're not hanging out. We're not doing this. You're a divisive man, and I don't want the ground to open up and swallow me. As it says in verse 31. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into shale, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze, the censers that had been dropped. Then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, for they offered them before the Lord and they became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel." So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar, to be a reminder to the people of Israel, so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. (laughs) What an impressive sight this must have been, to see the ground open up, and everybody falls down into the cracks And then they snap shut right over them. And where they were standing, there's now this big empty space. Not only that, but the people that were in the tabernacle, heavenly fire came out and consumed them, like Nadab and Abihu. There is an important note here. Numbers 26, 11, when it refers to this story later, it will emphasize that the sons of Korah did not die. So apparently his sons were not down with this. And when they were told to withdraw from the camp, they did. Which is why in the book of Psalms, they're given the incredible honor of writing some of the Psalms. So see, the sons of Korah said they were Kohathites. They were Levites, remember. And there was a panic in the camp because God was among them. The grave opened up and swallowed them whole. Eleazar is sent, take all of those 250 fire pans and hammer them out. Scatter the coals so that that holy fire will die and never be used again. And make a bronze covering for the incense altar in the holy place. Remember, it was gold. It had the four horns. It was about this tall. He said, now you're going to make a bronze covering for it. So that every time the priest goes in there to burn incense, he remembers this is not for anybody but the sons of Aaron. King Uzziah would try this in 2 Chronicles 26, and he would be struck with leprosy for the rest of his life. God does not honor rebels, especially not on Judgment Day. It will be harder for the person that resists authority. But I might add, too, sometimes the judgment of resistance to authority comes of our own making. When a wife usurps her husband's authority and beats him down and doesn't submit and he doesn't lead, neither one of them is happy. You know, wives who are are dominating over their husbands, they're not happy with their husbands. And he's certainly not happy. That's, That's its own judgment, isn't it? When people despise their leaders, the nation becomes weak. Haven't you thought that in the last couple of years? 
If we don't get our act together, we're going to be in danger here. When employees don't respect the boss, nobody prospers. Nobody makes money. Somebody's got to be in charge, even if they're not doing a great job. When the church holds the pastor hostage, those churches shrivel up and die. They're all over the country where they are not allowing the pastor to lead and the church is slowly dying. And of course, when we dishonor God, we, are, we ourselves fall. Ephesians 6 tells us, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The first commandment with a promise. Even the Holy Trinity is in harmonious hierarchy. So how dare we disrupt that for ourselves? God is a fan of order, and we need to remember that. Verse 41, you're not going to believe this part. On the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron again, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Moses is like, you're blaming me for this? And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they got a lynch mob coming against Moses. They turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. They knew what that meant. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying for the fourth time, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, put fire on it from off the altar, lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. It does not say of what kind. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. I love that verse. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. The people are going to blame Moses again, and they're going to depose him. They're probably going to kill him and Aaron because they're still believing the lies of Korah, even though he had just been very obviously demonstrated to be in the wrong. And even if they thought it was just Moses, if the guy can open up the ground and swallow people, you really want to come after that guy? But God appeared in the cloud and smote the people with a plague. And what Aaron does, as the only one that has the right to do this in the congregation, he puts incense in his fire pan and he goes among the people swinging that incense. So they're showing who has the right to do this and who is necessary to do this for you. 14,700 people died that day. Mark the courage of Aaron here. Standing in the gap for the people between life and death. Incense is always a symbol of prayer. Interceding for them. For these people that despised him and wanted him dead. He knew what God had called him to do. And he was willing for himself to suffer in the process that he might save those he had been sent to serve. That's true leadership. It's not prestige. It's not power. It's love and it's servitude. Doing what is best for the people that serve you, regardless of the cost to yourself. That's a true leader. Paul told the Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Even though the more I love you, the less I am loved. 
That's what it means to lead, not just as a pastor, not just as the president, as a father, as a husband, in the workplace. You've got to stand in the gap. You've got to be willing to do what is best and not worry about yourself getting puffed up. This is why people that are constantly agitating for a higher position for themselves make terrible leaders because they're only in it for themselves. Somebody who sits there grumbling and complaining and griping about how they're not on top or they're not one step up the ladder or I don't want to submit to him, that person will make a terrible leader because they're only in it for the authority. Jesus was our ultimate example of this. Standing in the gap, even for the ones that drove the nails into his hands. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And even today, he liveth ever to make intercession for us. His prayers ascend before the Father just as ours do. So the next time you desire to be boss, remember what that truly means. If your desire to advance is anything other than that you might serve more people, love more people, bless more people, die to yourself more, then you better give it up. Because that's not what leadership is. You can go too far. Well, we're running short on time, but let's do chapter 17 quickly. It's a short one. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs. One for each father's house, from all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. That could have been a 13th staff because, remember, Joseph was split up into Ephraim and Manasseh. Or there could have just been one for Joseph. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony, that'd be the ark of the testimony, where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel. God's like, we're going to put a stop to this once and for all which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel. All their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited them before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. So the plan of God here, he said, is to make to cease the grumblings of the people. This cannot continue for 40 years. So he makes a plan. They take these staffs, staves it should be actually and they bring them into the tabernacle they lay them out and God is going to determine whose staff is to be honored above the rest he's going to make it blossom now a staff of course is a symbol of authority in the Bible and while every individual matters to God he has established leadership in his church and this is to be recognized by spiritual people Ephesians 4 11 through 12 the five different ministries that the Lord has established as leaders apostles prophets evangelists shepherds and teachers to equip the saints Matthew 9:36 Jesus saw that the people were lost and aimless like sheep without a shepherd God needs full-time fishers of men and he's been calling them since the beginning but how can the rest of us know if the person leading us has truly been called of the Lord? Well, there's a great illustration we get in verse 8. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony, to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumbling against me, lest they die. 
Thus did Moses, as the Lord commanded him, he did. So he comes out with these rods. And a, a, a rod is a dead stick, right? That you had cut down from a tree. Well, Aaron's is alive again. <laughs> it's a live stick that had sprouted. It had blossoms. It had flowers. It had full almonds ready to be plucked out. Kind of like, all right, Aaron's the guy. And they put this before the Ark of the Covenant as a testimony for all generations. Hebrews 9.4 tells us it was later placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. How can you tell when God is called a leader when his ministry begins to bear fruit? We ought to know, first of all, to submit by virtue of the office, but a good leader will bear fruit. There will be almonds, <laughs> you might say. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. That's how you recognize a good and a false leader. What kind of fruit comes from their leadership? What kind of Christians come out of that church? What kind of disciples are made from that theology? What kind of societal change comes from this methodology? This is how we judge things. That's why 1 Timothy 5 tells us not to lay hands on anyone quickly. So you should not rush to establish somebody as a leader in the church, especially in the pastorate. Wait until you can have discernment and see good fruit born in their ministry. Until their rod buds, you might say. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? Well, they're finally getting it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They're finally realizing, okay, this isn't just tricks. This isn't just what we've seen in Egypt. This God is real. He really talks to Moses and Aaron is really his priest. That's really his house. We best be careful and, and take a second look at that law after all. Good leaders, fathers, kings, pastors, lead the people to a place of peace with God that very often begins with the fear of the Lord, but we usher them into the grace and the peace of Jesus. And that's who our, our ultimate leader is, Jesus Christ, who propitiated the wrath of God for us. And we might not like it all the time, but God has established order, role, and leadership in the world in which we live. We are not to be resistors, but to be servant followers and servant leaders so that we can bear good fruit. When we look to Jesus, the only one able to stand in the presence of God, the only one who can bring what is dead back to life, who himself was brought into the grave and came out of it. He is our Lord and master and to serve him is a great blessing. And better than that, Matthew 11, Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's not a burden to follow Jesus. It's the greatest blessing you'll ever know. So have you gone too far in resisting those that God has placed over you, and especially, most importantly, our Lord Jesus? Then you need to come back from going too far, bow the knee to Jesus again, and continue to live your life in proper alignment with what God has established.